sharing what you're feeling about some problem you're grappling with, this can be good for strengthening the relational bonds between two individuals. Like it feels good to know that there's someone there to validate what I'm going through, empathize with me. But if all you do is rehash what happened to you and what you felt, it doesn't actually do anything to help people work through the problem. And in fact, after venting, people end up often being just as upset, if not more upset about the problem as when they've started because the conversation just keeps all the negative feelings alive. Welcome to Intersections, where inner mastery meets outer impact. Our focus at Intersections is to dissolve the boundaries, to eliminate those constraints, which by doing so and walking out from the confines of how we at times tend to think about and approach life, we create the conditions from where our highest potential can arise, individually as well as collectively. Today, we have in our midst one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, Ethan Cross. He is an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and also at its Ross School of Business, fusing psychology with success in business. He has researched and studied how the conversations that people have with themselves impact their health, their performance, their decisions, and their relationships. He's founded the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory that explores how people can control their emotions to improve our understanding of how self-control works and to discover ways of enhancing self-control in our daily life. He is also the author of Chatter, which is a national bestseller scheduled to be translated in over 35 languages. It is a joy for me to have in our midst Ethan for an important and really powerful conversation about our conscious mind. Ethan, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining in the sections today. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Me too. Going back several years, as I uh, took a new turn in my career, uh, having you know been in consulting for a while and entrepreneurship and trying to figure out what I really want to do when I grow up, I, I, I was very drawn to the idea that um, in business, we need to equip our you know future leaders with not just the outer metal you know of what it is they need to be and do from the outside but really the inner machinery and so um you know your work speaks very closely to my heart i'm so thrilled that uh, you have invested you know a large part of your career in really taking that look within challenging us to recognize that we are creatures not just of how we show up from the outside but really who we are on the inside so i'm thrilled to get a chance today to have us take that deeper inner look at all these very revealing and beautiful findings that you have for us. Yeah, I think um, we're, we're certainly compatible in this, in this interest. I think what, uh, what we're talking about here is self-leadership. It's the ability to steer ourselves. And I think that regardless of whether you're talking about someone working in an organizational context or uh, a relational one, it is this ability to manage our emotions, to manage our mind, which is so pivotal to being successful and happy and productive. And, um, and it turns out there's a lot of science that, that weighs into how we can do this well. And so, um, so I'm eager to chat with you about it. Yeah, yeah. I want to draw a point of connection between um, your work and uh, just my growing up years. So I grew up in India, and one of India's beloved epics is this uh, 
you know, book called the Gita, which is this advice that was given at this field of war by this illuminated saint Krishna to this warrior, you know, Arjuna. And, uh, you know, for the most part, generally in the study of epics in India, it is viewed as an outer kind of, you know, story of a battle that occurred between, if you want to call it the bad guys and the good guys. A really powerful spiritual uh, commentary on this book that uh, I read, um, which was very informative and insightful for me, was one which said, you know what, that actually is really a metaphor. You know, that, that, that book, that epic is really a metaphor for the inner warfare that is happening in each of us between the good guys and the bad guys, you know, those thoughts and impulses that carry us more towards the dark side or the side of light. And um, when I read your book, Chatter, right, this is the book, uh, friends, that we are talking about today in particular as a very, you know, beautiful codification of Ethan's work. When I read that book, it takes me back to that, to that idea that, uh, oh boy, this inner chatter, this inner voice, it can, it can both really harm us, but it can also really, really help us if we, if we learn to do the right things with it. Yeah, I think these are age-old questions that we've been struggling with since really the dawn of of civilization as we know it. Um, a couple of months ago, I came across this this wonderful article that was describing this new discovery in 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 ancient Persia, I believe, of these ancient clay tablets, which, if I'm remembering correctly, are are the 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 first written documents that we now have on record. And what was interesting is when the scientists translated these documents, these tablets, one of the things that people were talking about were problems of managing emotions, right? So in the first written records that we have of people, we see these struggles of emotion regulation. We see this appearing through Eastern texts like Bhagavad Gita. We see it in the Bible. And, you know, we continue to struggle with it today. So I think this is one of the, the big challenges that we face. And if you go back in time and you looked at how far we've come in terms of the solutions that we have come up with for helping people manage our emotions more effectively or this inner life, we've really come a far way. Um, here's a little bit of trivia that, that I find just so interesting. The first surgical procedure that we know of was a technique called trepanation, which involved using a stone drill to bore holes in the skull. One of the uses of this first surgical technique on record was to help people manage their emotions, right? So if someone was really dysregulated, you draw, so you, you just dig some, um, drill some holes to let out the evil spirits. Fast forward to, to the more recent times, it wasn't long ago that we were sticking ice picks behind people's eyes to poke holes in their brain in the form of a lobotomy to help people manage their emotions. I don't talk about any of, I don't endorse any of those things as tools that in chatter that, that we would give to help people right now. Um, we've come a, a lot further from that. And I think that's really exciting. So, so these are ancient questions um, that modern science now has a lot to say about. And um, I think listening to science can be helpful, not only for improving the quality of our own lives, but also making us better leaders, better partners, better parents. I want to maybe begin this journey then with you in uh, reflecting on, you know, one very public struggle that uh, we have recently seen, which is in athletics. 
you mentioned a story in your own book about uh, you know the, the baseball player and then more recently we've seen it with uh, you know a couple of superstars right Naomi Osaki and then Simone Biles as well that somehow something in the inner workings in that moment of heightened pressure when you're seeking to really deliver your best you know if it's not going right for you which is a very human thing you know for for any or all of us then it can really compromise you know all the preparation that has gone into to that moment it was very heart rending i think for all of us to watch uh, you know watch those favored athletes you know at times struggle and then yet when we turn the lens within many of us felt like you know i've been i've been in their shoes you know i've been you know struggling with some of that can you can you reflect a little bit on sort of what you have learned about these moments of peak performance and what are in a chatter can sometimes do to um you know severely compromise our prospects there yeah happy to so chatter and you know just to be clear when i use the term chatter what i'm talking about is getting stuck in a negative thought loop you're experiencing some some problem you divert your attention and work to try to work through it but you get stuck and i think it's one of the big problems we face because it sinks us in three domains of life that we care a great deal about thinking and performing which is what you're asking me about right now but also our relationships and our health Now if we start with that first category thinking and performing there are two ways that chatter can sink us there. The first thing that that happens is is our chatter consumes our attention. And and that's problematic because we only have so much attention that we can devote to anything in our lives at any given moment in time. So a great example of this that I think uh, rings true to many people is to just think about a time in your life when you were worried or ruminating about something. and you try to do something else at the same time like read a few pages in a book many people have had the experience of reading several pages getting to the end they are absolutely positive that they read the material but when they're done they don't remember anything because their mind was somewhere else just as a, a sanity check has this ever happened to you <laughs> more times than i'd like to confess right so i mean you know if, if plug in instead of reading a book you know working on a project or listening to someone else speak if your mind somewhere else you're not in the moment this can be really problematic so that's one way that that chatter can undermine us in these performance contexts another thing that it can do is it can take our habits complex behaviors that we've learned to to execute without thinking that are are central to our success and it can function to dismantle those habits precisely when we need to rely on them. And so this is what we see happening often with people working in performance contexts like uh Osaka or probably most famously in recent times Simone Biles dropping out of the Olympics because of what she called the twisties, which is another term for for chatter. So if you think about what allows Simone Biles to achieve the greatness that she has achieved in her career, it is the following through lots and lots of practice she's learned how to execute these incredibly complicated behaviors without thinking right she could typically run down the exercise mat jump up in the air spin 3 times do a few somersaults keep the smile on her face and perfectly stick her landing now she does that without thinking as she's executing that behavior she's not thinking very hard well first i need to do this then i need to do that it's all automatized as a function of all of the practice she has um put into that 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 task what chatter does is it undoes that automatic behavior because we start hyper focusing on the individual elements of what we're trying to do so as she's running she's now beginning to think 
Am I running fast enough? When she jumps in the air, she's thinking, did I get enough height? And once you start scrutinizing on the individual elements of the behavior, research shows that the whole performance unravels. This is not something that is exclusive to athletics, though we see it happening across different fields of athletics, from golfers to baseball players to basketball players and so forth. But I think it is also quite relevant to many of the complex behaviors that all of us engage in in our respective fields. For example, I do a lot of public speaking. And through you know doing hundreds and hundreds of presentations, I've learned how to do certain things like use my hands in particular ways or smile, pace the, pace the room. If I stop in the middle of a presentation, I start thinking about, am I walking enough? Am I smiling enough? That takes my attention off executing the task as I normally would and my performance suffers as a result. So that's the way that chatter can dismantle performance and thinking in, in, in performance context in ways that can be really destructive. It's interesting when you were sharing that, when I was trying to relate it to my own self, uh, public speaking came to my mind as well as the arena in which um, you know I have uh, witnessed some of these dynamics unfold. And so I, I want to unpack this a little bit more with you, Ethan. Does this, by the way, relate a little bit to the studies on like having us be in a state of flow is, is, is chatter basically impeding us from getting into that state of flow? Well, I think, you know, flow has a very technical definition where you are, time is standing still and you are completely immersed and engaged in the act at hand. Whether every athletic performance qualifies as, as a state of flow, I think is, is not clear. But I think you can make the argument that chatter detracts from flow and would bring us out of that state. Because, you know, with flow, the demands of the situation are perfectly matched by the skills that you bring to bear in that instance. And if your mind is somewhere else thinking about other things that are consuming your attention, that's going to prevent that from happening. Yeah, yeah. I was um, a while back putting together, a, you know, curriculum on communicating with impact. And as I was trying to ask myself, what is everything that I've learned on that topic from studying some of the, you know, inspirational speeches and communicators and history to, you know, whatever the latest, uh, you know, understanding I have of human nature, I came to the conclusion that the ultimate in communicating with impact is when, and I'm going to test this with you, is when there is a state of fusion, a fusion between the messenger, the message and the audience. And it's almost like this, it's just one, <laughs> you know, it's just Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Couldn't and, agree um, more. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. And uh, so as you were describing the, you know, the impediments that Shatter starts to bring into uh, play for, you know, people in those high performance moments, it appears to me that what happens is that it starts to break break down the fusion. And I find that very fascinating because um, what I was aware of a little bit in this kind of research on choking, for instance, is the idea that if you have a lot of worrisome thoughts that are coming to you, that are making you feel extremely um, just, you know, fearful and worried about sort of how you're not performing well, et cetera, that, you know, you want to hold back on that and make sure that, you know, you can keep your cognitive machinery free to just engage in performance. But I think you're saying something perhaps even, even a little bit more than that, because you're saying it's not just like worrisome thoughts. It could merely be thoughts that are just measuring, reporting, checking in, just like on the step-by-step -step analytical kind of frame of what you're doing, which can, which can actually take you completely away from that state of fusion that you have to be in the automaticity of, you know, all the good habits that you've developed over time. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, so we, we completely agree about the messenger, the message and the audience or culture. I think that is the holy trinity of effective communication. What can detract from that? Certainly worry and, and other forms of chatter. You know, I think of worry as chatter about the future and present rumination tends to be about the past, but that can certainly interfere with that process. Um, being overly analytical in the form of overthinking things, I think, can also detract from that. Um, because in part, what what it, what engaging in any one of those mental processes does to us is it tilts the balance away from being from balancing our own interests and those of the audience that we're communicating with to being more focused on the self, more immersed in our own experience. And I don't think that is a great thing for communication. Right. That said, is it not the case that there are times when something changes in the environment? Maybe, you know, taking it beyond the base of experience or program thinking that we've had, uh, where uh, it actually is important for us to be able to register, you know, that shift or that change and make some kind of informed call as to how we're going to pivot, you know, something. What do you think about, like, needing to balance that with, uh, on the other hand, being able to play out the right script in your mind? Well, I mean, I think this is why we've got we've got the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, and it's what makes us so incredibly unique as a species. It is that ability to, to pivot when needed. Now, ideally, you're not pivoting midway through running down the exercise mat at the Olympics, right? That's not where this challenge is being faced. Ideally, you can choose to pivot when the performance not, you know, you're not in the middle of the competition. But you know, if you have to call a timeout, we do have the cognitive capacity to call those timeouts and augment how we respond. This touches on a, a broader issue that is of, of central relevance to the book, to my research and how I think about our mental lives, which is our inner voice and our ability, you know, to use language to weigh in on our problems. It can often get us in deep trouble when it when it conspires into rumination and worry in all the ways we've been talking about thus far. But I think what's easy to forget because we, we tend to over-focus on the negative stuff as opposed to the positive. So bad is stronger than good in general. What we often forget about is that this inner voice that we possess and more broadly our capacity for introspection is a remarkable tool, right? That allows us to do many different things from planning and simulating to correcting, to creating narratives, to coaching ourselves through problems. So the challenge that we face is not to always be on autopilot executing habits. The challenge is to know when we need to slip into that automatic mode and then to be able to do it without any uh, obstacles. But in other moments, when we can be more deliberate and reflective, I think the challenge there is how can we recruit our minds to help us problem solve without falling down the rabbit hole that is rumination? That is the puzzle that I think the, the Gita gets at and that, um, that I try to address um, in my research and in the book. Let's um, zoom out a little bit from that, like high stakes, high performance, high pressure kind of like frame to the broader frame. You've highlighted yourself how much, uh, you know, this this work on mastering chatter relates not only to our you know performing moments, but also to our health and also to our relationships. Um, I was very struck um, in reading the book about how you highlighted 
that a number of studies have shown sometimes we hurt uh, relationships you know that we are in when we uh, tend to start to outwardly express that chatter to a loved one to someone where we hope to get understanding from uh, which is perhaps quite counterintuitive to those of us who have sought solace at times in those kinds of forums you know with those kinds of people who yeah. will we'll, we'll listen and understand and empathize with us yeah it's a, it's a very tricky finding um not a tricky finding it's a tricky phenomenon in the sense that what we've seen is that we know from lots of research and when people experience chatter and this is true cross cross culturally and cross gender contrary to stereotypes people often want to share it with other people they want to talk about it there are a couple of exceptions to this rule people tend not to want to talk about experiences involving shame and certain forms of trauma but for all the other muck that we experience we typically want to get it out and talking about what's bugging us can be a very effective tool if you do it the right way with the right people and maybe we'll get into that in a little bit but it can also be problematic because one thing that happens is oftentimes we find people to talk to about our chatter and then we start talking and then we keep on talking about it over and over and over again and this can have the counterproductive consequence of pushing away people who genuinely care about us because there's only so much they can listen to before we ourselves start to bring them down particularly if we just keep on harping over the same things over and over we we begin to sound like a broken record and that can be frustrating for others so that's one way that this experience of chatter can create friction in our relationships with others the other way it can do so is by leading to something that we call displaced emotion which i think we see playing out nowadays uh, at the societal level due to the collective chatter we're experiencing due to the pandemic and the political and social turmoil that is permeating this world. So what displaced emotion or displaced chatter, what that term refers to is the following very common experience of you're frustrated and you then take your frustration out on an innocent party. So the real world example for me here is I've had a chatter filled day at work I come home, I'm doing some emails on the computer in my office at home. My daughter comes in, she wants to talk to me about her day. Daddy, daddy, can I tell you about what happened? Hold on, I need to finish the email. Daddy, daddy, I just told you I need to finish the email. Now I've lost it. So she really hasn't done anything to provoke me terribly. But what I'm doing is I'm taking out my frustrations on this other party. And you know, I think this phenomenon plays out in the context of, of, of road rage, increased violence um, that we now see. So those are two ways that chatter can have striking negative interpersonal or relational outcomes, which further highlights precisely why figuring out how to manage that mental state is so incredibly important. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I want to maybe uh, build on that by flipping the perspective in, into the following, right? Like so far in what you've just shared, there's a cautionary tale here for how we cope, you know, with our own chatter and our own emotions and recruit others to help support us, you know, in that regard. Now we can also think about it from the other vantage point of uh, when we are being recruited by others 
to want to be of some support to them and what's the best kind of way that we can show up there and kind of serve them in, in, a, in a positive way. A couple of really powerful prescriptions you're making in the book. It made me relate back to, you know, over the last two years, there were these moments of crisis that were hitting different countries at different points as the, the virus was going to, you know, ravaging, you know, at times, you know, certain societies, right, based on where it was peaking in that moment and what kind of pressure it was putting on the healthcare system and how many people were ending up in hospital and stuff like that. And uh, having been a resident of two, you know, two parts of the world, India and the United States, you know, I was seeing, you know, close at hand, if not directly physically, at least through the connections I have in, in both those parts of the world, you know, the, the, the story playing out sometimes in the United States, sometimes in India. And one of the things I was noticing with leaders, including those that some of them that we train and support at the Mentora Institute, is that the instinct, you know, was this very, if you want to call it, you know, parental kind of instinct of wanting to just kind of be there to help, you know, honor the pain, you know, that people are going through and to empathize, you know, with, with what it is that in that moment, you know, people are experiencing. But and so there are a lot of initiatives around organizations creating these kind of, you know, sharing sessions where people come in just to share. Like, can you believe what I've been going through? Like, you have no idea. And let me yeah. be authentic and honest and direct with you. But it was always something that was making me a little bit uncomfortable that unless we actually guide and train managers in how to actually create the space for those sessions and make people come out of them with some amount of redemptive growth or strength or courage or something, that just having them have a forum in which to share, well, it wasn't clear to me that was actually going to get them to... Uh, the right place. And I think like what I noticed in your book was that A, you scientifically validate that fear or the concern that empathetic leadership isn't merely about just creating a space for people just to kind of vent or share their pain. But then the other is you give a couple of very good prescriptions of what is it that we can do if you're on the other side to actually help people get to a better place. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think this is one really important issue because there is this very common assumption that our culture really promotes, which is that when we're experiencing chatter, what we should do is we should find someone to talk about it, just express our feelings, vent. And there's been a lot of research on on the consequences of, of venting. And what we've learned is sharing what you're feeling about some problem you're grappling with, this can be good for strengthening the relational bonds between two individuals. Like it feels good to know that there's someone there to validate what I'm going through, empathize with me. But if all you do is rehash what happened to you and what you felt, that doesn't actually do anything to help people work through the problem. And in fact, after venting, people end up often being just as upset, if not more upset about the problem as when they've started because the conversation just keeps all the negative feelings alive. The best kinds of conversations when it comes to chatter do two things. First, the people you're talking with they do take the time to listen and hear what you're going through to a certain extent. It is important to establish those, those empathic connections. But at a certain point in the conversation, it shifts from rehashing to trying to work through together to reframe this problem. And so if you came to me with a problem I would or some chatter, I would take some time to hear you out, to listen what you're going through. At some point in the conversation, I'd, I'd say, hey, I got it. Can, can I offer you some some feedback or some advice, or let me ask you a question. How might you have dealt with this differently? Uh, and so forth and so on. And so the idea here is the blueprint here is you want to start by learning about the experience and, and letting the person share what they're going through and then gently transition to start shifting into this reframing or perspective broadening mode um, to actually help them work through the, the experience. I think knowing about those two principles to getting good chatter support can be really empowering. 
And I think there are, very, there are two very clear take-homes. The first is, if you are the one dealing with the chatter and wanting to get support from other people, think really carefully about who in your network is skilled at not just listening, but at also helping you reframe and work through the problem. Those are your advisors. Those are the people you want to connect with. And then on the flip side, if you're the one who's being approached to provide some support, be mindful of these two principles. Take the time to listen, but then shift to to reframing. For me, these principles are really personally very valuable because I can tell you that I've got a relatively big support network, but most of the people in that network, I don't consider them my, my chatter advisors. They care about me. I care about them but they're not particularly helpful in, in letting me both talk and then advising me through the problems. And so there are only a handful of people that are skilled at this. And those are the people I go to. Wonderful. Wonderful. What a great lesson in um, curating thoughtfully through one's uh, social network to um, look for those that can really help you uh, in, in the right way in those moments. And this brings us to the finding that like really blew me away from your book. I, I, I you know, it's so thought provoking. I, I love it. It's going to really keep me, keep me up for a while, just thinking through how I can make it even more practical in my own life. And that is when you talk about how in those moments where we are seeking to be of support, you know, to the world and to others, to actually be a source of invisible support, that invisible aspect of the support was, um, was mind-blowing for me, really, to be honest. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it's such a, almost like a spiritual idea, you know, of like yeah. selflessly being of service invisibly and selflessly and yet uh, having a materially positive impact, you know, on somebody's life in a certain moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is this idea of invisible support and what's the logic behind it? Well, everything we've just talked about with respect to how to be a good chatter advisor, someone else deals with instances in which another person comes to you for for help with their chatter and there are plenty instances that that you know as a parent or or a leader or colleague you will have when someone will confront you and and ask you for your support but there will also be many situations in which you see someone struggling with their chatter but they haven't actually asked you for help and and so then the question is well what do you do you care about this person this colleague this loved one you want to help them but they haven't asked you for it the research that is out there uh, pertaining to this phenomenon suggests that you should be careful about volunteering support when it's not asked for because it can blow up in your face. And I think this is a very common experience that many parents have had, certainly true of me earlier in my life, where I, I would have seen one of my daughters struggling with something. I don't like to see that. I approach, hey, sweetie, can I help you with this? What's the problem? And that, that, innocent attempt to help is met with resistance and defense of this one. Did I ask you for help? Why are you bothering me? Mom, and then, you know, she calls mother, and then I get in trouble. What's, ha <laughs> what's happened there is I have threatened my daughter's drive to feel like she is, she has agency, that she's self-efficacious, she's capable of handling her own circumstances. This is an incredibly powerful drive that characterizes most of us. And, um, and threatening that can, can elicit negative outcomes. So then the question is, well, okay, well, what do you do? If volunteering the support is going to get you in trouble, should you not help at all? No. This is where the idea of invisible support comes into play. This is some work that Niall Bolger at, at Columbia has really pioneered. 
the idea is you're prov- you start finding ways to help people outside of their awareness. You're not shining a spotlight on the fact that you're helping them. You're getting them resources, but you're doing it unbeknownst to them. And so let me give you a couple of examples because there are many ways that this could play out. Some are incredibly simple. Let's say my wife is overwhelmed, chatter for various reasons. I can do things to ease her burden. Let's say it's her day to take care of the groceries rather than her doing it. I just volunteer. I, I, I go to the grocery store. I pick the kids up. Now, I'm doing those things. I'm not, at the end of the day, giving my my wife a little documented receipt that says, see all the things I did today. I'd like a little pat on the back. I'm just doing them and making her situation a little bit easier as a result. That's one very instrumental way of providing invisible support. Let's say someone on my in my lab group is struggling with a skill. Let's say it's their presentation skills. Rather than pulling them aside if, if they haven't asked me for help and say, hey, I've noticed you've really not been up to par. Here are some things I think you can do to improve your circumstances. Instead of doing that, which might might threaten them, I can just organize a lab meeting and say, hey, I want to focus today on on resources for improving the way we all present. Here are some things I find helpful. Let's go around. What are things that you find helpful? What I'm doing there is I'm getting this person the information, the resources they need, but I'm not shining a spotlight on their own inadequacies in this regard, right? So that's another way you could help. The, the, the final invisible support tool that I'd like to mention is, uh, is a tricky one to talk about, which will become clear in a moment why I say this. It's tricky because you have to do it in the right context. What I'm talking about is affectionate touch. So to be clear, um, I'm not endorsing affectionate touch when it is unwanted or in the organizational context, but an affectionate embrace, a hug, a pat on the shoulder, a caress, this is a very powerful tool of providing invisible support. If you think about what is the first tool that we use, that we get from others for helping soothe us in our emotional lives, it is actually touch. When babies are born into the world, we, we put those babies on their mother's chest, skin to skin contact. And we know from lots of research that an affectionate embrace releases a, a, a cocktail of stress-fighting chemicals. It also reminds us at the conscious level that there are people there that appreciate us and, and value us. And so, so that's another way of supporting someone invisibly. It's putting a hand on someone's shoulder. As cheesy as that may sound, there is, there's a lot of rigorous research that shows that that can be uh, a, a helpful and invisible tool as well. You know, I remember, so my, my doctoral student, uh, my advisor, when I was getting my PhD, just passed away, you know, just about a, you know, a year ago. And um, uh, at his memorial service, you know, I, I had a few minutes to speak. And um, uh, I remember just recounting uh, one of the most memorable, like, things that I have experienced with him. And it used to be that I would do like a week load of work and then have a lot of this hope and aspiration that I've broken through and gotten some, you know, some new ground here to offer up to him. And then I would go over to his office for a meeting long anticipated. And, you know, I would share, you know, my ideas and thoughts and we would bat them around and he would, you know, challenge me and push me and, you know, encourage me and all of that. And then when the meeting would end, we would, you know, as I would walk out of his office, he would, he would almost regularly just pat me on the back. He would pat me on the back and he would say, 
you know, well done, Atendra, good work, Atendra, keep going, Atendra. And that pat on the back was just like such a reassuring thing for me. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I remember it so much that I actually mentioned it in the memorial service that I'm so thankful, you know, for those very thoughtful pats on the back. So what you said, um, you know, really resonates with me. I, I'm also reminded of a story. Um, so Gandhi, you know, once was observing that his nephew was really struggling to differentiate between the R sound and the L sound. And, um, you know, and so rather than correct him, what he ends up doing is gathering together all these kind of, you know, young children who were there. He said, young children, come here, come here, we'll play a little bit together. And then he just like encourages all of them like him to jump up and down. And as they're jumping, he invites them to just like say the word hip hip hooray. And they say hip hip hooray, except this one, you know, nephew of his is saying hip hip hooray. And so then Gandhi just raises a little bit the volume, you know, when the hooray part, the hooray part is happening. He says, now repeat after me, hip hip hooray, hip hip hooray. You know? And until the boy actually gets it and he realizes it's not lur, it's r, and he actually breaks through and actually says it. And, um, you know, I just remember that when you were just talking. Yeah, about it's a wonderful, wonderful example of invisible support. I'm so, uh, thank you. I'm going to use that one. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, you know, I had never really fully understood the frame in which to put it, you know, because I, I love to look for the underlying principles behind these stories that inspire us. And you've given me the frame now with this. Uh, it, it's really a beautiful idea that uh, I want to carry forward. You know, I, I also want to kind of, in the few minutes we have left, you know, you know, I highlight a couple of other, you know, components of, of what we, you know, what we have in Chatter. And really for those of us who are, you know, quite, you know, keen and invested in wanting to take a deep and fuller look at your inner life and take it to a place of greater, you know, polish and impact, uh, I really encourage you to, to read Chatter. Um, there is, I, I love the fact that uh, close to the end of the book, in addition to the conclusions chapter, you have a chapter called The Tools which was a great reference manual because within it you've got a you know, collection of really practical and powerful behaviors that any or all of us can cultivate um, you know, as a codification of all the things that you're sharing in more stories and science form through the book. So thank you for that. And um, you know, the, the part that I wanted to maybe like, you know, ask you to highlight is, well, let me just put it this way. Like, what's your favorite tool? You've done so much seminal work in this yourself, and there are some great stories there about how some of that work got... Um, really informed and inspired by stumbles you had in your own life of how to really master your chatter. So if you had to pick like one or two of your favorite techniques, um, what would you, you know, what would you yeah, share? I'll talk about two that I actually use together. They're blended together. Um, they're both distancing tools. And so when I say distancing, one of the things that happens when we experience chatter is we tend to zoom in very tunnel vision, like on, on the problem at hand, we can't think of anything else. And, what we've learned is that the ability to take a step back and view our circumstances from a more uh, detached perspective can often be very helpful. This is not um, this is an ancient idea, of course. It's it's a, an idea that um, is embodied in many forms of Eastern philosophy. But what we've learned more recently is that there are many different ways to get distance from your experience, and some of them are really simple and somewhat even counterintuitive to some. So let me tell you about two distancing tools that we've studied and that I personally use a lot. One is called distant self-talk. And what this involves is trying to coach yourself or think through a problem using your own name and the second person pronoun you. Doing this silently, of course, not out loud. The form this might take is if I'm really stressed about something, I'm like, all right, Ethan, how are you gonna manage the situation? 
what we know is that it's much easier for us to give advice to other people than it is to often give advice to ourselves. Many people report finding it much, much easier to weigh in on someone else's problems objectively than their own. And what I absolutely love about this distant self-talk technique is it uses language to shift the way we think about ourselves. So we typically use names and pronouns like you when we think about other people. And so the link between using a name and a pronoun and thinking about someone else in our mind is so incredibly tight that when we use those parts of speech to think about ourselves, it gets us to relate to ourselves like we were relating to someone else. And that makes it much, much easier for us to work through our problems in a more wise and deliberate manner. So the moment I see, I detect some chatter beginning to brew, I instantly use this technique. It works really fast. All right, Ethan, how are you gonna manage the situation? It alters my perspective, helps me regulate my emotions. That's one tool. The second tool that I often use with distance self-talk is something that we call mental time travel. And this involves thinking about how I'm gonna feel about something that I'm struggling with sometime down the road a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, all of our emotions come and go, they peak and eventually end. And, and, and if you take a step back to think about our, our lives as a whole, we can easily become aware of this. The problem is that when we are mired in chatter, we lose sight of that bigger picture concerning our emotional experiences. And we can feel like the, the stress is overwhelming and is never gonna end. So simply reminding oneself that hey, a week from now, you're probably not going to be as worried about this as you are right now, or maybe it's a year from now. That does something really powerful for a mind that is consumed with chatter. It gives it hope, and hope can be uh, a useful antidote for this chatter experience. So those are my usually my first line of defense when it comes to chatter. I use my name to coach myself through the problem, and I, I think about how I'm going to feel about this a week or a month or a year from now. More often than not, that takes the edge off. It doesn't make the problem disappear, which we actually wouldn't want to do, right? Negativity in small doses is very, very useful. It's a functional state that we've evolved to experience. What makes negativity dysfunctional is when it consumes us in the form of chatter. And these tools take the edge off that negativity, allowing us to, or me personally, to get back to my life. So those are my favorite two. I'm glad you mentioned those because uh, they struck a strong chord with me as well. And uh, I, I would have wanted to draw out at least one, if not both of those, uh, if you hadn't mentioned these <laughs> as your favorite. So we're, we're uh, yeah, coinciding here uh, on, on, on tools that I resonate with as well. You know, I think the one thing I find very powerful in this, in this uh, way of stepping back and talking, you know, in that way with that language, you know, about, uh, hey, Ethan, like, what are you going to do about this? And what are you thinking about it? Or in my case, hey, Tendra, you know, it, it kind of like, is uh, similar to something I found very helpful, and I'm curious, you know, what you what you think of this uh, visualization, which is to really take to heart this Shakespearean kind of idea that you know all of life is a stage, you know, and each of us has a role to play, and to think of like Hetendra as the identity of this human being in this body at this moment in time, playing a certain set of roles, you know, as a professor, as a father, as a this or that, right? But then seeing my essence as being something more timeless, more changeless, and more uh, living in a state of ever-consciousness that sort of like is observing and directing the show, you know, in a sense, but not really fully identified with the drama of the moment. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, 
you know, I think that that tap, that tool, which in many ways I would describe as an amalgamation of several distancing tools I talk about in the book. It's not one, it's a bunch together, fly on the wall perspective, um, uh, transcendence. It taps into what I think is one core principle that explains how many tools for managing chatter work, which is it, it broadens our perspective. It, it breaks us out of this narrow, zoomed-in approach to managing our, our problems to, to allow us to look at the bigger picture. And when we look at that bigger picture and we realize that we're one piece of this broader puzzle, um, there's some solace that comes with that, um, that mental shift. I think this is why you know, experiencing the emotion of awe can be so powerful and helpful when people are struggling with chatter because you realize when... When I think about life more broadly, this this is you know this is just one element that it's one morning that's not going well. It's a much broader life, and um, and that flexibility can be really powerful. Yeah, you know we are uh, going to be out of time soon. I want to highlight that you've done a great job in your book of um, connecting the dots between the real lived experiences of people in the world and uh, these insights and principles that are emerging you know from from the science and from from your work and um, I, I love some of the observations you've had you know very subtly captured around Malala and how she has faced you know a certain moment and uh, you know pretty much applied some of the technology that you've you've offered us LeBron James as well and so many you know stories from your own career and, and life as well so kudos on all of that and and maybe in these last few minutes uh, Ethan it'll be great to just like move a little bit into your personal journey and I would be, you know, curious, what is it that has across the, you know, rich landscape of uh, professions that you could have been part of, you know, made you move into psychology? And then within that, um, of a whole range of different sort of research agendas that you could be pursuing, what has gotten you so invested in studying chatter? Oh, boy, it's a big question to end on. Well, you know, I think the what led me to this career and this question really goes back to my experiences growing up um, with my dad, who from a young age impressed upon me a few ideas that ended up being quite pivotal to how I think about myself, the world, and my role in it. One thing that my dad did was he talked to me a lot about Eastern philosophical ideas. He was not a Eastern philosophy PhD uh, by any means, but uh, but he was really interested in that space and he read read in that space for fun. And so from a young age, he would talk to me about the power of the mind to um, to help us navigate this world if you know how to uh, steer it well. And that was that was a, a teaching that I always valued and benefited from growing up. And then I got to college, took my first psychology class, and learned that the ability to skillfully use introspection to manage oneself was indeed a real asset for many people, but it could also be a tremendous liability. And so that just perplexed me. We've got this tool that is introspection. Sometimes it helps us. Other times it, it harms us in the most devastating ways. Why does that happen? And, and, and how can we use science to figure out how to prevent it from happening? Um, that 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 emerged into a curiosity um, uh, and a and a journey of exploration that continues to 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 bring me much joy and you know I I continue to think that trying to explore and understand how the mind works is 
one of the greatest jobs you could have because it is fascinating to ask questions about it. The other thing that led me to this path and is also one of the reasons I worked hard to translate what we know about this topic um, for a broader audience and chatter and some other things I'm doing along those lines is uh, my dad always taught me about the importance of, of helping at, in some way. And, um, and I do think that if there are valuable scientific nuggets that we're learning about, um, if I can play some role in, in disseminating that information to other people in a way that appreciably improves their quality of life, that, that gives me real personal meaning and is why I enjoy doing conversations like this so much. I can see that it's very, very evident in the spirit that you bring, you know, to this moment. And thank you for sharing, you know, those personal vignettes and how inspiring to hear about that relationship with your father. I love the fact that he was seeking to sculpt you, not just as much from without, from the outside, but from within to really work on developing the inner, you know, part of who you are. And uh, the connection with Eastern thoughts uh, is beautiful to hear as well. I have, you know, much more gray hair than you. And I can tell you when I was growing up that I, I got very drawn to the you know, to human nature and wanted to study and major in psychology but then I pulled back from that when at least at that time you know uh, what I was noticing is that a lot of the study was focused on the darker states of the human mind and you know the idea of the brighter states and the flourishing kind of aspect was not as rooted at that point in psychology and so I ended up like going down the direction of eastern thought myself and Buddhism and the Gita and yoga and all became the pathways through which I kind of fed that hunger in me and then on the outside I went down the path of math and business over time but then in the last 15 years as I've you know, reconnected with that hunger to really focus on the human spirit. It's been so thrilling to see the community having taken on a whole new turn with uh, researchers like you, right? And the work you're doing. And it's it's beautiful in some regards too, because I don't know what you think, but I mean, I'm almost getting the feeling that this traditional dichotomy that we've had between like science and religion, if we were to redefine religion as spirituality, you know, the quest for helping to understand things at a deeper level, at you know, at a more essence level and all of that, that if you think, you know, which is a hunger, which I think many people have, whether or not they affiliate with any faith or not. But, um, you know, it seems to me like science and spirituality are starting to come together a lot more than... Uh, oh, I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, one of my, my favorite chapters in the book dealt with rituals and the role that rituals play as a tool to manage chatter that spiritual and religious traditions have have given us and relied on throughout centuries. And so I think for much longer than science has been working to help us solve our problems, it has been religion and spirituality that has been doing so. And we now find ourselves at this moment where the ancient and the modern are coming together to, not antagonistically, but I think in a way that is potentially um, symbiotic, where we're using science to make sense of how certain facets of religion and spirituality impact our lives. And that to me is just a, a fascinating space. I think the more we embrace it, the better. And if you think about how, compare the amount of people in the world who fervently right. believe in religion and spirituality as compared to science. We have a tremendous opportunity to understand human nature by looking at those individuals. And um, I think we're beginning to do it. I think there's more work that can be done. And it is a, a, it's a, you know, a really fun journey to be on. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm so happy to hear that. Kudos, you know, Ethan, for bringing that kind of a sensibility to modern science.
And to close us out, what is, you know, what's your big dream in life today? You have, uh, you know, blazed a beautiful trail. You have uh, accomplished much. You should be proud about the authorship of this, you know, this beautiful book. As you look forward, though, what's your, what's your big dream? Well, big dream would be, here's what I think would be phenomenal from a, uh, both a scientific and, um, and also a helping society point of view. I would love for us to one day be in a position where we can actually prescribe individualized plans for helping people manage chatter. So the note I end the book on, and, and this is where I think the research stands, is we've done a great job at identifying individual tools that work for people. And we've profiled very carefully how those tools work in terms of their underlying mechanisms and so forth. But what we haven't really done as a, a field is we haven't looked at how do people use different combinations of tools in different situations? And how does that different depending on who the person is and what culture they come from? And I think we have the resources to start addressing those tools. I, I can't, despite very much wanting to, I can't prescribe, you know, seven tools to you, but three to my wife, depending on the problem you're dealing with. But I would love to see us develop that kind of rich contextual understanding of, of how people experience problems in their lives and how we can help them. And, um, and so we're doing research on that topic right now, and hopefully we'll have something to say in a few years. I love that. I love that. You know, I, I grew up in um, you know, a world where one of the guidance I got from yogas was that there are different paths up the same mountaintop, you know? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. People are just uh, traveling their own path, and some are more heart-based, you know, some are more cognitive, some are more action-based, like in terms of like selfless doing, and some more maybe spirit-based in terms of meditative, quieter, reflective, contemplative practices. But but they're all different paths up the same mountaintop. And I'm hearing you almost like talk about something like that, right? Or something that science can hopefully maybe more practically inform us with the right tools. Over time. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the metaphor I use is the fingerprint, right? We all have a unique uh, physical fingerprint. We, we also have our, a unique psychological one. And right. I think we're often searching for simple individual solutions, one size fits all approaches, and they don't exist. And mm -hmm. I think there's, I think mm -hmm. it, it, in some ways it does, it does humanity a disservice to think you could reduce everyone's problems to one tool. Um, <laughs> right. That to me is not is not um, disparaging. It's exciting. It means there's a whole lot more for us to explore to figure out these complex connections between people, problems, and tools. And um, and my hope is that we we keep working at it. I love it. I love it. I wish you well on that journey, Ethan. It's a beautiful dream for you to put forth, uh, both for yourself, but really for the scientific community and the consuming public on the other side. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to seeing the arc of your work as it unfolds next and uh, to having you back at Intersections sometime in the very imminent future. Very grateful. Thank you. Likewise. I'd love to, love to come back. Thanks for having me.